Alumni Podcast for solo parents and those considering solo parenthood by donor conception. I'm your host, Mel Johnson, the solo parenthood coach and solo mum to my four-year-old daughter. Series five of the podcast is dedicated to donor conception. I speak to a range of donor-conceived people as well as experts on donor conception to cover a range of topics on this subject. Today's guest is Jana Rucknow. Jana is a licensed professional counsellor and international consultant specialising in fertility and family building. She's the best-selling author of the book, Three Makes Baby, How to Parent a Donor-Conceived Child, and has a podcast of the same name. She's helped thousands of people face the challenges of infertility and helping them to prepare to grow their family in non-traditional ways. Jana, thank you so much for saying you'll record an episode of the podcast with me today. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for including me. No worries. So I've noticed that you've been doing loads of work, which is so relevant for my solo parent community. And um, so I was super excited when you said that you would speak to me. Before we get into some of the questions I've got, do you want to give yourself an introduction and what led you to what you're doing today? Sure, absolutely. So I'm a psychotherapist that's specializing in fertility and third party family building, including surrogacy and adoption, donor conception. And I started this because I actually built my family in a non-traditional way through adoption. My husband and I adopted our second child, our daughter, who's now 17. And um, so I began, and I was going through the master's program and counseling and getting my license and uh, did my first internship within the field of infertility, began working with infertile patients and counseling them. And so it just grew from there. So that was about, that's been since 2010. So. Brilliant. And what I've noticed lately is that you have spent more time talking to and um, getting the voices of donor conceived people out there and listened to. Why do you think it's important to hear more from donor conceived people? Yeah, it is so important to hear their perspective because of their lived experience, because they have a different experience than a lot of times their parents had growing up. And we, I think we just all assume that if we went through a particular, if we lived life a certain way that maybe everyone kind of experienced that way, it's hard to put ourselves in, in someone else's shoes. And so getting in the shoes of, in the minds of our children, of the kids that are born in non-traditional families is so helpful because then we can be their guide and their support system and their mentor and all the things that we want to be as a parent along the way as they're growing. And what we don't have to go then, you know, there doesn't have to be any backwards work when they're an adult, they don't have to do you know, uncovering things about themselves they didn't understand. We get to do that with them along the way and just give them this, I always say, give them this like higher platform to launch from. It is difficult as um, a recipient parent to put yourself out there and hear some of those conversations. I think definitely when I started my journey, I would almost much rather shy away from that and just stay in my little bubble and think, well, everything's okay here. And I'm really now challenging myself, inspired by quite a number of people who I've seen 
exploring this topic and the importance of it. But it can be difficult to have some of those conversations and listen to some of the points of view. And I, I think a lot of people are worry that have they made the right decision and is it has will their decision impact their children? And I know that you've shared a bit about people have found it difficult. What, what advice would you give to recipient parents around listening to some of these discussions and being involved with them and trying to keep an open mind? Have you got any advice for people? Yes, I do. Actually, I first of all, I relate to that so much. And, um, you know, just even being an adoptive mom and an adoptee, there's a lot of um, stuff around the topic of adoption that can be difficult to hear and and sad you know just sad like like you want to be the best mom you can be and then there's sometimes you feel like there's some things that may you may never quite be able to fix um and that's hard because we want to fix it and so i would say one to have compassion with yourself and, and know that i have compassion for you because i felt the same way um i think there was this like again a time where i kind of wanted everything to be a little bit more not perfect but you know just wanted everything to go right and i think as i walked through my parenting experience and my family life experience, I realized that that wasn't the point. The point was actually to mess up, not on purpose, but to let yourself mess up and to just learn from that and to grow together as a family from those challenges and from the hard things. And I think once I overcame the fear of, of what maybe was could go wrong or was possibly wrong, once I overcame the fear of that, then I could step into it with confidence and feel empowered and feel like I can take this on. And, you know, I took on some hard stuff because I did that. I know others can, and that's why I do what I do. So I can help others take it on too. And because, and I also saw the beauty that came afterward. So I would say, acknowledge your feelings, feel the fear, but don't let fear stop you. Because on the other side of fear is usually, if you work through that fear, usually isn't more fear. It's usually skill building and empowerment and confidence and, you know, and, and all those things. And, and reach out to people who can help and have the resources to help you. I think it's such good advice. I think I made a shift when I've tried to adopt more of like a growth mindset and a learning mindset and let go of the fear of making a mistake. I've definitely made mistakes right at the beginning some of my thinking now I think oh you know now I've learned more I realize that what I thought in the beginning wasn't right but it's it's letting that go thinking that's okay you can't know everything you can't be right you can't and, and it's okay to make mistakes as long as you're willing to address them and learn and constantly be looking at how can we do better so I, I think that's the Thing that helped me but I like what you say about working through the fear I think that's that's really good advice for people and really resonates with me oh good yeah and I think just knowing that you're not alone that there's so many of us parents going through this too in different ways and we're and going through really difficult things and challenges not just you know with it with our children or with maybe what they're going through in school or in development but also just in our inner inner monologue with ourselves and our parenting and wanting to be a good parent and wondering if we're going to mess it all up. Um, the messing it up part can be the, it truly can be the beautiful part because, and I can say this now with a 21 year old and a 17 year old, because in the messing up, 
when I could acknowledge it or notice it or talk it through with my kids, with developmentally appropriate ages, it taught them that one, messing up is okay, making mistakes is okay. And two, how do we bounce back from them? How, do, how are we resilient? How can we overcome? And what can we acknowledge um, that now we know better? Kind of like what you said, we know better, you do better. And it's okay. And forgive yourself for what you didn't know. How are we, you know, it's almost, think about how impossible that is to expect of ourselves to know something we just didn't know. And, and yeah, it's, it's, it's important to have self-compassion. And it's hard to sometimes to get into a space where you think you do know everything and sometimes letting yourself be open to learning that yeah. maybe what you thought originally isn't right. Um, that's a, that's a skill to get into, I think, as well, isn't it? It's so true. And that kind of sometimes challenges us and like almost like our um, thoughts about ourselves Again, that inner monologue, like, well, okay, if we are if we were wrong, what else are we wrong about? Oh my gosh, is our whole world going to come crumbling down? No. And so it's like letting those little pieces, letting those little pieces come in and knowing that doesn't mean anything is wrong with you. If you didn't know something or you based in a, your assumption on a different set of facts and information and knowledge, or you just, it just hadn't come to you yet. That layer of experience just had, was not pre present to you then, you know, you kind of go back to the all things in time as they're meant to be. And if you trust that process, then the unfolding of that process can be trusted as well as it's happening. So true. Really good advice. So I've read your book, Three Makes Baby. And I think one of the things that was really interesting um, for me reading that was around unresolved grief in this process. So I coach women considering taking this path to parenthood and not for everybody but for a lot it's not the path we originally thought we would take we thought we were going to be in one of the rom-coms and we were would um you know meet somebody and live happily ever after and um you know conceive naturally with them and it is a it's a journey to let go of that idea and, and embrace a new idea and I think that speaking to people at all different stages from considering this path to parenthood to people who are parenting um, a donor conceived child on their own as a solo mum, I think having unresolved grief about your path to parenthood can definitely impact you at every stage of the journey. And I see people think that they should have resolved all that by the time they've become a parent so that they can only have that period whilst they're considering it and they have to have completely worked through it and yeah. and of course there's many people who who haven't worked through all that what what's your take on on that is that something you see as well absolutely and you know i have people really want to kind of wrap that up and you know have closure on their grief before they move forward and and i think it's really difficult to do that because part of in my experience and what i've seen others go through is part of the grieving process is comes up after the child is here after your child is here as you're experiencing different life events situations things that you wouldn't you didn't know were going to happen then grief may come up again and when it does it's okay and it's normal it's common so when I try to encourage people to look at it that way and almost expect it. So when they do, if that happens to them, then they don't feel like this other scary thought, this bigger scary thought of, oh, I regret. I regret I shouldn't have doesn't come into play. So 
when we think of I regret, I shouldn't have, I messed up, then all that shame-based narrative starts to influence us in our patterns and our parenting and the way we interact with the world and ourselves in a negative way. We might cover it up, we might run from it, we might act out, we might be irritable. So instead of letting that language come in, I want people to recognize that's grief. And to say instead, to say, I feel sad today because you know, maybe a situation came up that reminded you of your loss and that's okay. That doesn't mean I've done anything wrong or I should have gone a different path or, you know, I messed up. It just means I'm sad today and I'm feeling grief and I'm going to let that come up and I'm going to look at it and I'm going to love myself through it and, um, and, you know, move forward. So when we get into trouble is when we that negative and, and language that scary language comes in and then we just start fighting and we're battling it right we're battling ourselves and that internal you know battle is affecting who we are so yeah and everything that i am learning at the moment is around the importance of sharing openly with our children their story of of their conception and in a solo parent family in some ways that's easier because there is no other parent there so you kind of have to explain some element of the story because they will they will want to know why they haven't got a dad in in the picture because probably a lot of their friends have and they can see that it's visible so i think probably most of the people i've spoken to the, the story is shared more openly it's not hidden um because it's it's harder to do that and i think people uh, feel more confident to to share it i think one of the things that I see though is if you have still got unresolved grief and you are still struggling yourself with the story that that might translate a little bit into how you then talk to your child about it do you think that we influence how our child feels about being donor conceived by how we talk to them about their conception we sure can. Yeah, absolutely. We children pick up on all of our nonverbals. So when children are little, they're mostly they're just an emotional brain. That's all they are. Uh, they don't have that prefrontal cortex. That thinking brain isn't developed. So they're emotional and our emotions, our emotional brain picks up on all the nonverbals, all the things that aren't said the feelings we're feeling. So if there is tension or um, shortness or frustration around the topic, or if one parent is like in your case, it's, you know, you've got the one parent, if it's like, you know, we don't want to talk about the, the missing other parent, you know, you don't want to talk about it. It's a looming thing. Then they can pick up on that. And so, and it's sometimes that's just because you don't know exactly how to talk about that, that person. So I think it's really kind of joining the mind of your child. You, know, you can think about what if you were a child again if you can go back to being a child again and you were imagining what um you know if you had a dad and you didn't know that person he wasn't there what what might you want when we know at a young age they're very imaginative they're creative you can join in your child and just create something with your child and so you're exploring through through play through imagination um their wants and their needs and if you join in their world and go with them and, and show them that you're open to that, to what they're, where, where they're wanting to explore, they'll feel that from you. They'll feel your openness and your playfulness and your lightness. But if you kind of shut down the conversation or move on quickly, or it doesn't matter, you know, you don't have a dad, they might feel that 
mom doesn't want to talk about this. This is a tender topic, or maybe mom even cries, you know, sometimes um, that they won't, they won't bring it up. So, yeah. And I've noticed, I think sometimes we put a lot more of a story on things than our children do. I, I've, at a young age, I think my daughter's only just coming up to before, she takes everything at face value. So what I tell her, she's like, oh, okay, that's what it is. Whereas yes. we've built a whole narrative about what it means. And, um, and, and yes. so actually our children accept things more easily than, than we do. But if, definitely I can feel that if the more confidently I talk about it, the more confident she will feel. And actually speaking to some donor conceived people who've had solo parents bring them up, they've all said, my parents, I felt like they were so proud of the situation. And so I've always just felt like that. Um, mm -hmm. So definitely it makes me feel like the more positive we can be about the situation and the more normalized we can make it for them, the easier it will be for them to understand. And acknowledging feelings too. And so if, you know, let's say a movie comes on where there's a theme that's similar to your um, narrative, to your family narrative, and you notice a, a change in your child's behavior, or you notice uh, an extra, maybe they're really paying attention. They're really taking it in. You can use that as an opportunity to say, did you notice that little mouse, you know, has a mom, just a mom too? like you and and you can use those moments to explore feelings and if there is any you know there's going to be a range of emotions possibly so if there are and there are sad feelings to as a parent not make that about us and not take responsibility or feel shame or guilt for your child's sadness but to instead just be present with your child's emotions and they don't they don't want to make you feel sad. That's not their intention. They just want to express their feelings. So the more you can be clear and present for them and just not make it about you and just be like, hey, you can share anything with me, the more they're going to continue to do that. I think it's such good advice because I think so many people are just so nervous that their child's going to be upset about this. They're almost waiting and dreading for a moment where they say something negative and then you think, oh no, it's come true. They do feel unhappy. So oh, yeah. I think what you say is, is so helpful. It has happened to me where my daughter usually is very factual about it and she knows the situation and she talks about it confidently but then the, there's been you know some occasions where she said oh but I want a daddy and you what you do immediately your heart just sinks and you think oh no um but then it is a bit about exploring it and and not feeling flawed by that being prepared to to, to carry on the dialogue to explore it a bit more and usually it, it again at four she's distracted by something else like two minutes later but then that leaves you with a feet like you know analyzing it for hours later so for sure and you know yeah listening and then in that moment when you can also think about what how you can teach her emotional skills and emotional intelligence skills in that moment and also how to self-soothe so if we can't fix a problem and, and I think that's the problem is like, we always want to look for that solution, but there isn't one. So instead that what, really what the solution is, is teaching to self-soothe. So you say, you know, I can see how that would make you feel sad. I see you feel sad. What would, what can help you make, what would feel better right now? Do you want to just feel sad for a minute? We can, or is there something that might make you feel better? 
And then they can go, hmm, let them think about it. And maybe it's to go in, in their little tent with their little, their little loveys and their stuffies, or maybe it's to run outside and jump on the trampoline, you know, whatever they need. So you're teaching them to be in tune to their feelings and then to, to take care of themselves. And that's more, that's the most important thing that we can learn and, you know, for the future. Brilliant. Yeah. Great advice. And just in terms of language. So I know language is um, really important. And in, in this area, people have got different views about the language we use about things. So for me, and I think for a lot of solo parents, we would say that we used a donor. For our children, they may think of that person as a donor. They may think of them in, in a different way. And I know that there's been, there's lots of discussions around the fact that that is actually um, and I, I actually don't know the difference. You can maybe help clarify a biological parent or a genetic parent. But with younger children, it, by introducing the term, you know, your biological father or your genetic father, I don't know. I feel like that would be quite confusing because, for example, my daughter is very clear that she doesn't have a dad, you know, in our situation, that she's mm-hmm. got a donor. I am very happy to support her in however she wants to refer to that person in the future. But right now, I think if I put the word father in there, it might be confusing for her because then she's like, well, I thought I didn't have a dad. So yeah, that, that's, a, that's a lot of things. But what, what is your thoughts on language and what we should call the donor? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I definitely understand the, the nature of your question. I think there, there is a thought that they would be confused, that they would confuse that that biological father would mean that that's the person that's supposed to be there raising them every day yeah. and in their life and you know showing up to their activities. Um, in my experience, you can actually understand, a child can actually understand that there is a person that helped them to come to be in this existence in in a biological sense, but that isn't their parent, that isn't parenting them. And so it's just because we don't have a better word for, you know, biological, we could say biological parent or biological person. And so it's just, we just don't have another word for it. Um, And so it's just usually, so that word has different meanings. And I know it seems like it could be confusing, but I think because children are living it every day, they, they get it. They're like, okay, yeah, he's not my dad, but he, but he is my biological person that I'm, that helped create me. Yeah. That person is, there is a, so, you know, in terms of genetic, the reason I use that different language in the book is that sometimes when women carry their babies, if they use an egg donor, they do consider themselves biologically connected. Yeah. And so they like to use that term, which I, you know, that if that is, I, I think that's fine. So long as you're not dismissing the genetic differences. Yeah. Um, but if with, as far as genetic parent, I think it's just a new term for something that we just didn't have before, you know, in the adoption, adoption field, we have birth parent, birth mom, birth dad, but we just didn't have anything for donor conception. So genetic made the most sense since, you know, it's happening It's microscopic, you know, level. And that's mainly the difference. Yeah. And I think the key is as our children grow up, it's up to them how they want to refer to that person yeah. and, ha- and what they think. And we just need Absolutely. to support them in however they want to think of it. Um, Absolutely. I, I guess is the most important thing. Yeah. And the surveys that have been done is that a majority of the people that have been surveyed here in the United States do use the term biological 
person, biological father, biological mother, because it's just such a, it's the only word. Um, and they, but then a, a certain percentage do use the word donor as well. And some people say genetic parents. So people that are donor conceived may use a variety of terms. Sometimes they'll tell you once they know their name, they just use their name. It's yeah. just, you know, you don't have to call them anything but by their first name. <laughs> that kind of seems to be the easiest, honestly. Um, because I know just as an adoptee, having to explain to people, people say, well, who, what about your real mom? Did your real mom have curly hair? And I'd be like, oh, you mean my birth mom? I would always correct them because I was like, my real mom is right there. <laughs> you know, yeah. you mean my birth mom. And so, yeah, you have to, as, as an adoptee, as a DCP, you have to correct people a lot that are misusing terms. Um, but that, that's kind of what comes with it. And again, going back to why we want to listen to their voices. So we understand their lived experience and the questions and the interaction they're having that you may be likely, if, unless you were adopted or donor conceived that you didn't have. Yeah. And half the thing is understanding what's behind it, isn't it? If people want to use a certain term, it's trying to understand why that's important and why they want to use that. And it can help you just understand a little bit more the importance of different things. And I think if we, yeah, yeah, it's kind of like listening to, it's kind of like, I, I see it like we are being respectful of what like pronouns and what people want to be called, you know, and same with that. It's like, we, you want to almost wait and listen and say, well, what do you prefer I use? And I've, you've heard on my podcast, I've messed up probably and said something and then they correct me. And I say, Oh, I apologize. You know, let me use the correct term that you would prefer me to use. And I think that's all we can just do is be open to that. We're, we're going to mess up. Of course we don't know. You know, we don't know we're doing the best we can, but we're considerate. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it is hard to get used to. You don't want to make a mistake. I, I mean, I, I, I get scared. Oh, I've, I'm really sorry. I hope I don't make a mistake. But actually just putting yourself out there and learning and owning a mistake, um, I think is, is the best way to get through it, isn't it? Oh, totally. Totally. Yeah. Um, so some of the women I speak to say that they feel awkward um, sharing the story. So my advice to everybody, just because it's what I did and it worked really well, is to start talking to your child literally from birth. So, and, and it was awkward. So I remember there's some great books out there and I was using, um, some books which help you navigate that story. And of course my baby doesn't understand what on earth I'm talking to her about. However, I feel like I used that time to feel confident myself in getting to share the story and how I could how I could own that story. And now when I talk to her about it, it's second nature because I've read the book so many times. So that's kind of like why I started. Also, I don't know when she did start understanding. And so it just by starting from the very beginning, they understand when they understand. Have you got any advice for people who are feeling awkward about the story and, and how to share it? Yeah, just, I'd say do what you did because that's perfect. You know, the, just like a new dance, you're learning a new dance, you're going to stumble. I mean, I'm not a good dancer, so I'm never going to be good at it, but you know, you stumble around, you trip, you, you don't look right. You don't feel right. It doesn't feel good. Um, but you keep practicing it and you get better. And when you, that's why those baby years are so key because they're babies. So they're, you, it's a great audience, right? You're not, if you stumble in front of your baby, it's okay. So that's the time to start practicing and let it feel awkward. Let the tears come, you know, whatever emotion is coming up, allow yourself that. 
during that time. And then by the time they are more interactive with you and maybe even in middle school where there's maybe things happening with their peers that you want to be more attentive for and more kind of next level uh, ready, you're ready. You're not just then starting the story because then it's, it's going to be that much more clumsy, right? When at that age. So I think I really liked what you said in the book, actually, about um, when they're a baby, they're not going to answer you back or ask yes. more questions. So you get yes. the opportunity to say the story and it's just, your, it's just how you're saying it. And then by the time they're old enough to ask you some questions, which can be quite hard, kids ask hard questions, yes, um, <laughs> you're a bit more confident with the story because you've been saying it for a while and you can yes. be a bit more prepared then to, to go into more of a two-way discussion about it. Them. Exactly. They don't talk back when they're babies. So, you know, it's exactly. time to practice. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Great. So for the solo mums that are listening, have you got any, what, what is your like top advice for people of things that they should be doing or they should be open to or should be researching or listening? What advice have you got for people? You know, it's, it's that keep seeking and probably my favorite is have wonder and wonder about your child. Because again, when you can't answer questions or you don't have solutions, because you know you, there may be points all along the lifespan where there aren't answers or solutions, what, what you do have is the ability to see who your child is, to explore and understand and wonder about them and show that curiosity. So then it helps them to explore their own identity and their own and find their own talents and strengths. And so I, you know, I've told a lot of people, my daughter, it was adopted from China and we don't know anything about her genetic relatives or biological relatives. And also I got to, ex, I got to uncover and witness her as she grew. And I got to witness these and see, it was like a, a, a surprise every day, you know, what am I going to get? What's going to you know, come out? And of course that can be with biological children too, but even more so when you don't, when it's not familiar traits, it's not family traits that you're used to seeing. So that wondering curiosity about my daughter, at times it was very different. And at times it felt very different than what I was used to, but I kept that wonder and an awe of she's different, but look how cool this is and look how this can work for us. Um, and so I think people, when they can't, again, if you can't find your biological relative and find out more about yourself, you can still find more about yourself by doing the work within and help and those around you supporting you. And have you um, got any views on finding donor siblings? So this is um, a conversation that lots of the people in the solo parent community have to say, we would like to find donor siblings now while our children are young to give our children the opportunity if they want to, to get to know people at a young age. 18 seems like really old to be finding uh, a donor sibling. Have you had any experience or got any views on whether you think it is beneficial to try to find donor siblings for, um, for our children? Yeah, I think it could be wonderful. It gives them, again, some of those answers to genetics that um, tendencies that are showing up in, in other you know, half siblings or siblings, they can learn more about themselves. Um, and you, you feel both adoptees and donor can see people say they feel more um, connected, like they belong. 
when they can see that there are people that are like them by nature. It just, they didn't choose it. It's just who they are. They feel like they belong more. Um, and so I think that finding siblings gives them that sense of belonging from a young age, which as we know, I mean, in therapy, like in, as in psychologists know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the pyramid that goes up at the very basic is that need for a sense of belonging. We need to feel like we belong. And that's what often what adoptees and DCPs, donor-conceived people feel is that lack of a sense of belonging sometimes when they either, when it's not acknowledged, their differences aren't acknowledged, and they have no connection, like both. You know, because I think if you don't have a connection with genetic relatives, if you can't do that for whatever reason, it's you're in a country, it's totally anonymous, you can still find, you can still be, you can still be encouraged to discover your genetic identity by what I just said, by that sense of wonder, by as parents, by distinguishing behaviors. Um, I mentioned that in the book. That's basically where we as parents notice what is different about our child from us. And, but we also notice what is the same. And we give them both equal emphasis. I think I, that was something that I really took from the book because I'm very confident about talking about my daughter's conception, but hadn't felt as confident or even really thought about how to talk about where different traits may have come from, where she is the same as me, where she isn't. And so that gave me definitely a bit more confidence to to make that just part of normal conversation. Um, so that that was really useful, I found. And, and that's something I'm starting to try to do more. It gives you really fun too. I just, it can be a very fun conversation. So I would encourage parents that are thinking that's scary, that just kind of to go back into your playful side, because that's how I've approached it with my daughter. And again, go back, go back to the sense of wonder. So I will literally say to my daughter, I wonder where you got that. And then she'll stop and pause and think and, you know, and it shows that I care and I see her and it also gives her that moment to reflect on it too. And I think what you said about belonging um, is slightly different, but because I've got quite a few friends who've also got donors conceived children, I really noticed my daughter feeling like, oh, we're going to see the friends and they've also in, in a similar situation to me. So um, I would love to find siblings for my daughter. I'm on that journey of seeing if I can do that. But in the meantime, you can still see a sense of belonging when she's got friends who are in the same sort of family situation. And, and that really makes me feel like definitely you can see it's important for kids to feel so belonging in different ways. That's a very good point. Yeah. Having meeting families that are like yours is really great. Really helpful. I interviewed quite a few people, um, DCP who said, Oh, if I could have grown up having other people who are in this situation, it would have been so nice. But obviously, cause I'm interviewing adults at that time, I think it was much less common, particularly for solo parents. Whereas now I think it's much easier to, to connect our children with other people in the same situation, which is great for them. Fab. So if people want to find out more about what you are doing, what you're talking about, your book, where can they find you? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I have, I'm on all the social platforms at Jana Rupnow LPC. And I am, I've written Three Mixed Baby. I also have a podcast by the same name where I've interviewed over 60 people, both recipient parents and donor conceived adults and some experts too. 
And I also have the, the book is on audio. Uh, it's going to be an audible real soon. So yeah, the, you can reach out to me. You can email me. Um, I do see, a lot of people are surprised to know that I do, I am seeing clients. I'm, I'm con doing consultations. So some people, if you want a one-on-one, -on -one, I am doing that right now. I don't know how much longer I'll be doing that, but um, at least in the short, you know, in the next two years, I probably will be still be doing that one-on-one. -on -one, so Brilliant. Oh, well, thank you so much. Really interesting to talk to you and um, so much great advice. Oh, absolutely. Thanks for having me. If you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast, it'd mean a lot to me if you take a few minutes to rate, review and subscribe. If you'd like to learn more of what's on offer at The Stork and I, head over to my website, thestalkandi.com or follow me on Instagram at thestalkandi with underscores between the words. You can hear more about the coaching I offer, as well as hear from donor-conceived adults, industry experts, and the opportunity to meet and become a part of the Solo Motherhood community.